if we don't vaccinate everyone on the planet, then we will get additional variants and we will get outbreaks such as this. And it's, it's, it's a false economy to just protect ourselves. From Medigild, this is homeostasis. The place where medicine and society meet to address the most pressing issues in our changing world. I'm Nandita Harish. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Neela Janaki-Romanen about the Australian COVID response and its impact on global vaccine equity, health advocacy and migrant rights. Dr. Neela is a reconstructive plastic surgeon, as well as a writer and advocate for global health education and equality. It's been a few months now since India descended into the COVID crisis that the country is currently battling. As a migrant with ties to India, as well as a health professional, what was your experience of watching that crisis unfold? Look, in a lot of ways, it wasn't actually that different um, to a lot of the other countries that have had significant surges of infection. Um, We saw it happen in wealthy countries um, such as the US and the UK and large parts of Europe. Uh, We've seen significant surges of infection in a lot of resource poor settings um, and middle income countries, uh, including in South America, uh, in African countries in you know South Asia as well, uh, and the Middle East. So you know the 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 rise in infections and the rise in deaths was not particularly unusual um, in a global sense. Um, the Australian response to that was different. Uh, it, it's very clear that you know, certain interventions that were taken against particularly Australian citizens who were stranded in India, um, to Indian children who had been separated from uh, their families here in Australia, um, the the ban on arrival. So those policy settings were different um, to what we had seen when there were surges of of infection in other parts of the world. Um, We never really closed our borders to the US, even though our first imported cases into Australia were from the US in March 2020. Um, We never closed our borders to the UK, um, either to, you know, those travelling for business or or returning uh, Australian citizens. Um, So I think, you know, from... I think it's important to make that distinction that what happened in India was not unusual or unexpected for a populous nation that um, had low vaccination rates, uh, but the Australian response was different. So that brings me to the next question, actually, because the Australian government announced the India ban and essentially criminalised Australian citizens who were trying to return from India. So as a nation with a significant Indian population, as well as a geographic proximity to the country, what do you think Australia could have done differently in that situation? Oh, look, I think Australia could have done all sorts of things differently as it relates to all sorts of things um, related to COVID, if I'm completely honest. Um, you know, there's there's a ban. Lots of things have been criminalised in this pandemic. And you know, personally, I'm not a fan of criminalisation. It is rarely uh, an effective tool um, to get people to do what you want, um, either in a public health setting or in a or in a more general setting. Um, even you know, people who work in criminal law don't really support the criminalisation of more and more things for that 
that reason um, because it's it's ineffective it brings in police it, we know that you know policing is variably applied uh, and it creates all sorts of issues without actually getting the aim that you're trying to achieve and so uh, you know it was it did become a criminal act for for people to return from india but similarly you know it is a criminal act to leave australia right now at the moment um and the same fines apply sorry about the cat um so it's i i think that it is a problematic policy setting in principle um i don't think it's effective i don't think it's helpful um at the moment you know we're we're recording this in early july and we've seen a significant reduction in arrivals um of returning australians from all destinations at the moment and that's problematic too because we are the only country that has restricted the right of return to citizens and you know as citizens we should all be asking if we don't have a right to live in this country if we don't have a right to return to this country what is the value of our citizenship and why should we become citizens at all um and so i think these are difficult questions that we as a nation and we as a voting nation i think in particular um have to answer because yes it is the government who makes these decisions but they are the government that we vote in and we do as individuals have the ability to um advocate for change uh of some of these policy settings if if we think that that's important uh and so and i guess the reason i mention that you know we we have reduced arrivals now is if we actually look at the statistics right now here in july 2021 the proportion of returning australians testing positive to covid-19 uh in hotel quarantine is actually much lower than it was a couple of months ago um and the current outbreak in sydney which has just seen them you know increase their their public health settings today uh was started by a driver of freight crew not of returning travelers um and so it's complicated i think we are a nation that likes borders we are a nation that has voted for stronger borders for 20 plus years and if i'm honest you know we are a nation that was founded on borders and we're currently recording this on you know unceded aboriginal land so you know we we have a history of being protectionist of not you know wanting to support people who are different to us for wanting closed borders for thinking that um people who travel people who come home are are problematic in certain ways so so none of these policy settings was a surprise um i think it is fundamental to who we are and if they have come as a surprise to people then i think that indicates that um perhaps they didn't quite realize who we are as a nation So you spoke about advocacy and how we vote for change. So another aspect of that has of course been the vaccination policy. So you wrote an article recently for Women's Agenda about the privilege of vaccinations as well as the inequality in accessing them. So currently the global vaccine initiative Covax by the Vaccine Alliance has been a bit of a failure and a lot of low-income nations are still very very under-resourced, especially some of our Pacific Island neighbors. So while we are understandably preoccupied with our own vaccine rollout and all the issues that come with that, 
Do you think we have a responsibility to aid these countries and their vaccination programs as well? Oh, absolutely. Look, I think that one of the things that a pandemic really shows up is how interconnected we are as a planet. And I think there are a lot of issues where, you know, we can prioritise ourselves, we can prioritise our own citizens, we can prioritise our region, you know, however you want to, you know, humans are very good at dividing ourselves into groups that we ally ourselves with. And so however it is that you want to carve up the planet, um, you know, protectionist policies have been around for as long as humans have been around. So, you know, that's fine. But when it comes to things like pandemics, when it comes to things like climate change, you know, these are global issues. And if we don't think globally, then we will fail. So again, you know, if we come back to the current outbreak in Sydney, um, which has thus far failed to be controlled by um, the New South Wales excellent contact tracing teams because of a variant that is just that little bit more infectious, you know, that is a variant that developed in a country with poor access to vaccines. In fact, it was a country where the vaccine was being manufactured and sent to wealthy nations. And so... We do absolutely have a role in ensuring that the vaccine rollout happens at a global level because if we don't vaccinate everyone on the planet, then we will get additional variants and we will get outbreaks such as this. And it's, it's, it's a false economy to just protect ourselves in this particular circumstance. Um, and, and to that extent, it is very disappointing that the COVAX Alliance has failed as miserably as it has, uh, although, you know, perhaps that was always predictable. So I'm a med student, and over the past few months, it's been abundantly clear that this is not just a medical or a scientific issue, but it's equally about human rights about morality and about politics, but we're not really taught any of these aspects during our study and training. So how can med students and future doctors be better prepared to engage in and influence these intersectional issues in a more holistic manner? Um, I'm gonna say something extremely controversial. Generally speaking, across the board, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of medical students in this country come from a place of privilege. They come from a place of um, socioeconomic privilege. They come from a place of class privilege. They come from a place of um, social privilege, of educational privilege. And medicine traditionally as a science and an art has been patriarchal, has been male-dominated, has been something that privileged people do and privileged people have access to. So I actually think that most medical students and most doctors have to really go out of their way to learn about disadvantage, to learn about intersectional disadvantage uh, and to learn about you know, even simple things such as the difference between equality and equity. Um, you know, equality is everyone gets the same thing, whereas equity is, you know, giving people what they need. And our medical student selection programs are not particularly equitable. Um, y- you know, even areas of need such as having more um, doctors of First Nations background 
um, is something that a lot of medical students fight and they say, hang on, but if we, you know, if we let an Aboriginal medical student in, um, that's unfair to the rest of us. You know, they, they shouldn't have equity access. And these are conversations that I've heard and, you know, unfortunately had to participate in. So, so I think that that's the first thing I will say in answering your question of what can medical students do to learn about inequity. I think the first thing I would say is to check your privilege and very, very few medical students will not be swimming in enormous amounts of privilege. Even medical, you know, people like me who, you know, can point to gender discrimination and racial discrimination I'm still here because of a whole lot of intergenerational privilege that brought me here. And so I think we have to be comfortable with that and not feel guilty about it. And then that's when you can start to look at the world and consider the ways in which we can make it more equitable. And I use the word equitable rather than better because better looks like different things to different people. Um, whereas for me, I think that what we're trying to do is make it more fair. Um, we can't fix everything, but we can fix our little corner of the world. We can be kinder to patients that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. We can, you know, my greatest educators are actually my patients. You know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily, you know, my mentors and my peers. They are very much my patients. And I often say that doctors are in a, and nurses and other healthcare workers, for that matter, are in a really privileged position because we actually get to see the full cross-section of society. Um, very few people get that opportunity. Um, most of us run in our own little circles of people who are quite a lot like us. Um, so if you, you know, for if you're a lawyer, for example, in a corporate law firm, or, you know, even if you're a politician, to be honest, you've got to go out of your way to find normal people, you know, the normal people who live, you know, in an outer suburb, and maybe they're a single parent, and, you know, maybe they're struggling to make ends meet, and they're actually on, you know, median household income in Australia, which is $80,000. You know, the number of times I hear doctors say that they're not rich, because they're comparing themselves to company CEOs. But actually, they're on three, four, five times the median household income as an individual. And so, you know, it, it's, we have this incredible opportunity to speak to people who are diverse. And I don't think, I know lots of people do take that opportunity, but I, but there are those who don't. Um, and I think that that's generally the starting point is if you talk to people, if you put yourselves in their shoes, you walk, you know, five steps with them, that teaches you a lot about the world. And that teaches you that, you know, the ways in which we are all the same and the ways in which we are different. And that in and of itself can give you some of the answers as to what you can do to make your practice more equitable. And speaking to your experience, once again, you've consistently participated in written and verbal advocacy throughout your career. So how did you get involved in this? Did you start during your medical school times and how were you able to sort of sustain that throughout professional practice as well? You know, it's it's really interesting um, how you phrased that question. Um, I was smiling, as you said, uh, throughout my career. This I haven't been an advocate throughout my career, not by any stretch. You know, may, maybe I wanted to be. Um, I probably did. Uh, but I, I want to make it really clear to listeners who, you know, want are in this because they want to make the world a better place that, there will always be problems for you to fix. 
you know, you don't have to do stuff as a medical student. You don't have to do stuff when you're, you know, in the trenches of medical training. Um, this will not, you know, be the last war that you can volunteer with MSF with. This will not be the last human rights injustice that the Australian government perpetuates against a, a group of people. Um, so, you know, advocacy is both a daily event and it is a journey. Um and I, and I think that one of the problems with speaking to people who are, are known to have participated in big projects is it's very easy to think that if you haven't done something big, then what you've done is worthless. But sometimes it's the little things that are important. Sometimes it's, you know, being a good ally, you know, sticking up for the the underprivileged, disadvantaged medical student who's in your troop group, you know, making sure that they're included, making sure that, you know, just because they're the one person in the group who has to work two jobs to, you know, survive through medical school, they're not academically disadvantaged. You know, that is advocacy. Um, so if, if you talk about some of the bigger stuff that I've done, you know, some of the refugee work that I've done, a lot of it was accidental. A lot of it was not saying no when an opportunity arose. Um, I think it is harder to do advocacy ethically than it is to do it at all. Um, I'll give you the two, two most useful bits of advice that I have collected in my journey. And the first is that there are always risks and there are always dangers in your advocacy. Um, just because you are trying to make something better doesn't mean you can't make it catastrophically worse. And we've history has shown many examples of people who have made things worse rather than better by advocating. So the first thing you have to do is do the people that you're advocating for actually want you to advocate for them. Like that's, that's a really simple first step that, you know, people don't necessarily even ask that question. And then the second question is, how do they want you to advocate for them? I remember in, um, when we were doing, working on the Kids Off Nauru campaign, uh, getting a, a request from a journalist who wanted to run a story on a very prominent, well-watched national current affairs program. Um, basically saying that they could only run the story if we were able to provide the images, photographs of children who were suffering in Nauru. And, you know, retelling that story, and I'm sure, you know, all of your listeners are thinking, God, you would never do such a thing. Um, but when you're in the trenches, when you know what's going on, when you know that you know, children are on the verge of dying, maybe you would do that thing, that here on a, you know, cold winter's day, talking, you know, very academically, you and I are looking at each other going, God, that's a terrible thing to do. And that's why you need people around you to go, hang on, no, 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 that's, that's actually not a good thing. Is this how those people want to be portrayed? Is this the right form of advocacy? So working with people who have professional qualifications and communications and advocacy um, is important. You know, I've we've had conversations with, you know, bioethicists about, you know, the, the ways in which um, doctors should participate in these kinds of things. So so that that's the first thing I will say is that all of your advocacy is not actually about maximizing outcomes, it's actually about minimizing harm. 
Um, and so if you haven't considered potential side effects and harm, then don't start. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing I would say with all advocacy is that you're never going to be the same advocate with the same platform, with the same issue for your whole life. And at the end of the day, it's about being part of a movement. It's not about having an individual axe to grind. <clears throat> and sometimes it is very much about taking a back seat. You know, a lot of the work that we have done um, was silent. Um, it was deliberately below the radar. We will never get credit for it. And that's not the purpose of why it was done. Um, and so, but that's okay. And you've got to be comfortable with that. You've got to be comfortable with the fact that you're doing it because it's part of a broader movement. And if it ever gets to be uh, a thing where it's just you standing on your soapbox with a platform, then you need to rethink the approach. And sometimes the best approach, if you're part of a movement, is for one spokesperson to sit down, be quiet, disappear, and let other people carry that mantle. Um, only a very small part of advocacy is actually public. Um, and a lot of that public stuff actually carries a lot more risk than it does benefit. A lot of it is actually just hard slog. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting and also particularly relieving as a medical student that often feels really insignificant and rather overwhelmed that, you know, everything big and small is still advocacy. So that that's very comforting to hear. Oh, and look, it's, it's about, you know, it's, I want to do more than comfort you. I actually want medical students listening to this to slow down because I'm going to sound like such an old person when I say this and I apologize for that, but I am an old person and I have a lot of gray hair now. Um, but you know, knowledge and skills can be rapidly gained, but experience can't. And I do think it is very appropriate for medical students to not jump beyond their experience levels. Um, some of my early research, I'm going to tell it with a, a story rather than, you know, just a didactic lecture. Some of my early research was in the importance of surgical care in um, resource poor settings. And um, one of the things that I learned while doing that research is how many people in resource poor settings were killed by medical students, junior doctors, trainees going and operating on them. You know, the world's poor are not there for us to practice on. And if you wouldn't do a procedure, if you wouldn't perform care, if you wouldn't be part of a media campaign in your own country, then you shouldn't do it anywhere else. And and I think that that can be said for a lot of things. And that's not, and I'm not saying this to say that medical students don't have a lot to contribute because youth does carry with it vigor, enthusiasm, novel ideas, you know, the thoughts that can change the world. Um, and, and I think that it is really important for medical students to get involved and do these things. And, you know, if you look at someone like Ruth Mitchell, who was involved with um, nuclear disarmament from the time she was a medical student, um, ultimately going on to win a Nobel Prize, you know, that, that trajectory is possible. And, 
And so I definitely don't want to dampen the enthusiasm of youth. But what I would say is um, just temper that enthusiasm with humility and uh, keep in mind that there's still a lot to learn and be part of a movement where you will be mentored up and given those skills so that you can ultimately lead. Don't just jump in and think, that you can necessarily lead a movement right from the outset. And if you are, again, ask for advice. You know, there are senior clinicians, there are bioethicists, there are, you know, comms people, media people, so many people who can make sure that you get it right. So that that's that's what I would say. Yep. I think that's a very valuable perspective for medical students as well as junior doctors. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. No, that's all right. My pleasure. Homeostasis is a production of Medic Guild, a new community which builds conversations by and for medical students and doctors to demystify the medical journey and help you achieve your goals. For the latest resources, courses and information, go to our website, medicguild.com. This podcast was produced on the unceded lands of Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions.